0: Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the
1: co-founders of Range Ventures,
0: an early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Brian Abrams. Brian was most recently the president of IBEX Investors, a Denver-based hedge fund, where he co-founded their Israel Venture Fund in 2011 and helped it grow from $2 million to more than $700 million in assets under management over the course of the last decade. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I've I've enjoyed listening to all your podcasts of past guests, and really happy to be here. Flattered to be here as
0: as a guest today. Great. Well, you've got a, a really cool background, and and would love to hear a little bit about how you got into investing and how you started IBEX. Yeah,
2: sure thing, sure thing. I guess just going all the way back, I was born in Denver, I grew up here. Uh, was always very into uh, math and physics and computer programming. Went out to Harvard for college where I quickly learned I was not smart enough to actually go into those things. So rerouted, explored, and kind of serendipitously stumbled into venture capital, which uh, has been a great path taking me all over the world. And uh, it's been a lot of fun professionally. There's a great I was catching up recently with uh, an old friend, uh, Adam Werner, who was the former director of the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver, the MCA. Um, and he's got this amazing quote. It's such a good quote. He's actually got a tattoo of it on his arm. And it's by Wallace Stevens, poet from about 100 years ago. It goes something like this. The quote says, after the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. And that's been, for me, the story of my career. It's It's been about a decade of no's as an entrepreneur, as uh, somebody exploring venture capital in India, which was a great exploration, maybe a small success or maybe a big failure, depending on how you look at it. And then finally, in the last decade, a yes as I uh, explored venture capital in Israel and things really started to work.
0: Tell us a little bit about about Ibex then, and kind of what you what you built there.
2: Yeah. So IBEX Investors has been around for a couple decades. I joined 11 years ago to co-found the strategy focused on Israel. And this was prompted by a trip my former partner took to Israel around the startup nation. I don't know if you guys have read the book, but it basically tells the story of how Israel came to be essentially the hottest ecosystem in the world outside of Silicon Valley. The highest concentration of startups anywhere outside of the uh, Silicon Valley most number of Nobel Prize winners per capita, highest R&D spending of any country in the world, Uh, Warren Buffett's favorite place outside the US, just all this amazing stuff. And he had taken a trip, had seen that, he and I have known each other since we're growing up, happened to have a coffee a few days after he got back, and he said, I know you've done a lot of international business, but have you seen what's going on in Israel? And I said, no. He said, you gotta gotta read this book, you gotta check it out. I did, and long story short, we started a fund focused on Israel, based in Denver, but focused on Israel. And we started very, very small, couple million bucks, which you know, as you guys know, in the world of venture capital, is not a lot to work with. But sort of little by little by little, it was an evergreen fund, so we we're able to keep raising money all along the way. When we had exits, we we're able to recycle that capital. And so, from two million to ten million to twenty, million, it was like a freight train, just chug chug chug, little by little by little. And after about ten years, we uh, we approached a billion dollars in cap in the firm, and most of that focused on Israel as a strategy. So,
0: uh, you know, again, after the final no, there comes a yes. That's an incredible, incredible journey, Brian. So recently, you left IBEX. Talk me through your thinking there. What are you doing next?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, it was a phase of life transition. It was an amazing decade plus investing in Israel and traveling uh, all over the world to to meet these great companies that you know they all started in Israel, but they as they grow and mature, they they basically cross over to the U.S. or Europe or wherever. And it was an incredible incredible journey. And now I'm exploring new new parts of the world. I'm off next week, actually, to Vietnam and Singapore and Malaysia. Later this year, I'm off to Northern and Eastern Europe. So I think Israel is a particularly unique country and ecosystem, but there are all these wonderful hotspots around the world of innovation, of talent, of really exciting entrepreneurial ventures that I'm, I'm exploring. And we'll see how that all comes together as, when we get into next year.
0: Curious then, you know, given your experience being in in Denver, um, growing up here, and then seeing these other startup ecosystems, how have you seen the ecosystem here evolve? How does it compare and contrast with some of the other more or less successful ecosystems that you've seen? You know, Israel, just
2: by way of example, is a a really special one. And in some ways, I think, offers the potential for what the front range, Denver, Boulder, and elsewhere in Colorado can, can become. You know, Israel is a tiny country. You've got about nine million people, just a little bit more than the population of Colorado. The landmass is basically the Front Range. I mean, it's like Fort Collins to Pueblo. That's it. At its waist, at its tiniest, it's seven miles wide. Nothing. I mean, Cherry Creek to uh, downtown Denver. For those who are here, so really, really small country, but very much. Self-reliant, the the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. This is a, a country and ecosystem where when they were founded, they're in a desert. Okay. They're not getting much rain. Their neighbors are hostile at that time, uh, more peaceful now, but at the time hostile. So they couldn't get any fruits and vegetables from their neighbors. You couldn't ship it from Europe at the time. It would have rotted. So they had to figure out how to grow all their own food, fruits and vegetables in a desert. So what do you do? you figure it out, you invent something, you innovate, and they created drip irrigation. This Israeli company called Netafim. Out of nothing, of just sheer ingenuity, it grew to become a multi-billion dollar company and ultimately, essentially exported drip irrigation all over the world, where now with tiny bits of water, it created amazing agricultural innovation everywhere. That was out of necessity and they did it. Now, that was about 50 years ago. Today. In israel it's cyber security where israel's become again by necessity they have hostile enemies all over who are hacking them they had to get very very good at cyber and now they're really a cyber superpower it's a country that's i think 0.1 of the world's population and i think last year was about 20 percent of all cyber deals worldwide so i look at that as an ecosystem and i look at what they've done again innovation born of necessity Um, plus they've had great support through the government they have something called the office of the chief scientist or the office of innovation that's been very supportive of entrepreneurs and startups and then ultimately a culture that embraces it anyone who's been to israel knows the israeli culture is i think candid is an understatement they're like like new yorkers on steroids i mean they they say what it is They say it directly. They say it immediately. And, and that culture of directness, of honesty. I'm thinking of your previous podcast with Harsh Patel. um, Be honest, be direct. They do that really, really well. And what it leads to, if it's complemented with openness, is a tremendously fast iterative culture. When something doesn't work, something fails, they say it failed. They don't use euphemisms, it's not a challenge, it's not a pivot, it's not adjustment. It failed, and now we gotta fix it. And now we gotta do something new. I'll tell you one one quick story on that front. When I was first in Israel, very first trip, I'd never been there before, I didn't speak Hebrew. I'm at a startup and there's, in the conference room, we're waiting outside to get in, and there are a couple of Israelis uh, in the conference room, and they're screaming at each other, just full volume, Maximum decibel, screaming at each other in Hebrew. I think they're going to fight. I mean, I'm worried these guys are going to are going to go at it. And I say to my friend who's with me, who's Israeli, you know, what are they What are they fighting about? What are they yelling at? And he looks at me. And he said, "Fighting? No, they're just debating. This is they're just talking about the next feature. Those two guys are best friends. That's and then sure enough, like a minute later, they've got their arms around each other. They're walking out. You know, uh, they 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 couldn't have been closer. But that was how the culture dealt with iteration, dealt with debate, dealt with open and direct communication. I think that if I look at all those things I've seen that have been so successful in Israel, I think there's a lot universally that uh, we can borrow from that and uh, try to emulate. I think, you know, I look at the, the front range in Denver, there's a lot going on here. It's come a tremendous way in the last 10 years, 20 years, but, the next 10 or 20, I think you are going to be even better, especially if we kind of learn those lessons from them.
1: And Brian, thinking back to the last you know, 10 or 20 years, and you probably have a longer perspective than most people as well, given that you also grew up here. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen happen over the last 10 to 20 years? And what do you think the next 10 years holds here in Colorado?
2: Yeah, I think there's been a tremendous um, influx of talent, most of all. I think a lot of people have looked at the US, they've looked at the coast and they've said, it's really expensive and really competitive and just harder to live and less fun on the coast. But where can I where can I be where I can live in a place that I love, where I can be in a culture that I really enjoy, uh, where I can get, in our case, in Colorado, get outside and enjoy all that Colorado has to offer and do what I do professionally in the terrific ecosystem. And I think that Maybe some of the natural advantages that Colorado has have attracted people, but then um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, a self-reinforcing feedback loop where the more talent that moves here, the more they attract other talent. And that, that really just builds on itself. And I think I would say two decades ago, that was just starting. One decade ago, it was really... It was really developing its own momentum, and I think at this point we've reached escape velocity. So I, I think there's no doubt this ecosystem is just going to continue to build and build and uh, and create ever better companies and startups and and, uh, and keep continuing to bring talent.
1: Well, you know, Brian, I completely agree with that. The only reason I moved here is because Adam moved here, you know, nine years <laughs> prior, right? So, completely agree with that. Um, Brian, is there a company here in the Front Range that you're, or anywhere in Colorado that you're really excited about right now?
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm biased on this one, but my one of my college roommates, Brian Leach, is the founder and CEO of Ibotta, and I think what he's done, he started the company. About eleven years ago, right around when I joined IBEX to co-found uh, our Israel strategy, and what he's been able to do building a you know one of Colorado's first unicorns um, has been tremendous. And I think that company's got uh, incredible potential. And and what I love that he and you know other companies like like Ibotta are doing for the ecosystem is um, helping bring Colorado onto the kind of national and global stage. And I think uh, those kind of homegrown success stories do that. So I'm, I'd am i have to plug Ibotta on that one. But again, with the caveat that this is one of my college roommates. <laughs> well, we're, we're a big
0: fan of Ibotta and, and Brian and the early team there of, of Kane and Luke as well, all really impressive, impressive folks and a really big company for Colorado. Want to get to the main reason why we're here. Love to hear about your biggest lesson that you've learned in your career, how you've learned it and, and how you apply it today.
2: Yeah. So since we're talking about Israel, I feel like it's apt to share an old Yiddish saying. And the saying goes, we plan, God laughs. And I think I've seen that to be true in life, but I've also seen it to be true very much in venture capital and startups. You have plans, you have roadmaps, you have an idea of how these things are going to play out. And the only certainty is that it's not going to play out that way. The only certainty is that whatever the plan is, is not going to happen. And I've learned the solution to that is either one of two things. You can either try to will it to be what you want it to be, or you can go with the flow. And and there's an old Chinese, ancient Chinese Taoist concept of Wu Wei. Uh, It's anglicized as W-U-W-E-I, Wu Wei, or pronounced Wu Wei sometimes. It literally means no action, but what it actually means is effortless action. It's sort of like being in the zone. Anybody who's you know, has played sports, you, you've experienced this. If it's skiing, you just feel like you're floating, or if it's golf, the golf ball feels like a ping pong ball, um, or if it's team sports, you feel like you're just dialed in with your teammates, like you've got ESP, you know what they're gonna do, they know what you're gonna do, and it all just works. It's that, that feeling of flow. That, I think, I've learned, it's counterintuitive and it's not the prevailing conventional wisdom and venture capital for sure, but that adaptiveness, that agility, that going with the flow and as a way of dealing with change, I think is the best way to, to adapt to what comes your way. There's, I'll share one other anecdote. This is from one of the Taoist sages, again, 2000 plus years ago named Zhuangzi, and tells this story of, and by the way, I'm going to paraphrase this. So if I get it wrong with apologies to uh, Taoist scholars out there, the story says Confucius and his disciples are are hanging out near this waterfall. And, And you got to imagine like a big waterfall, like not maybe not Niagara Falls, but big. And they're talking about whatever they're talking about. And they see at the bottom where the water lands and the pool this old man, and he's being tumbled around by this waterfall. And they're thinking, this guy's going to drown. we got to get down there and save them. This guy, you know, this is not a waterfall. Anybody could survive. So they race down. They finally get there. And the old man is now at this point on the riverbed. He's drying off. He's whistling a tune like nothing happened. And so they walked in and they say, how, how did you survive that? We just saw you being tumbled around by this epically giant, Awful waterfall, but here you are unharmed. What's your secret? And he said, "I grew up nearby. I learned this as a boy. When I go in the waterfall and the current takes me down, I don't fight it. I go with it. And when the current takes me up, I I go up with it. And then eventually, the current delivers me on the side of the river, and I get out. I go with the flow. I I don't fight it. And I think ultimately, you know, there's some ancient wisdom in that." that we can apply in life. We can also apply in startups and investing. Um, You can fight it. You can try to get there through sheer force of will. It might work. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really painful, or you can go with the flow. You can zig, you can zag, you can apply this concept of Wu Wei. and, uh, And I think ultimately it gets you there better, and it's certainly a better ride.
1: Yep. Yeah, Brian, that resonates a lot with me. You know, whenever we look at plans and especially financial plans, right, that early stage founders have, right, you know, they ask for feedback. And, and my first thought was, you know, well, the only thing I can tell you for certain is this is wrong, <laughs> right? You know, and I, I don't know exactly what's wrong or how it's going to happen. But I think that's why Adam and I spend so much time thinking about the founders, right? In their ability to be resilient, right? And their ability to adapt because, you know, a startup is a series of experiments, right? And you, you got to figure it out as quickly as possible. Do you have any tactical tips for sort of how you've actually embraced and pulled that philosophy into your life and how other founders and entrepreneurs can do it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think of, and you see this Anybody who's a founder has experienced this. Anybody who's a venture capitalist has seen this happen in probably every single one of their portfolio companies. It's exact as you said. I don't know what's going to happen when I meet an early stage company, except that it's going to be different than what they expect. I think part of it. Talking, we talked earlier about the culture, the startup culture in Israel, and the ability to be open, honest, direct, responsive, um, sometimes dispassionate about the feedback you're getting. I've seen it. I'll give you an example. We we had one of a one of our companies that we invested in at the seed stage about ten years ago. They made compliance software and and it really focused on its. It was kind of the web equivalent of a recorded phone call, and that was and that didn't exist. And they were trying their first big international customer. a big bank a name anybody would have heard, and they're really pushing. They're selling it. They're they're trying to talk about all the compliance benefits and why they need it, why we'll spare them from lawsuits and how it'll help them with regulators and all this stuff. And the bank was like, yeah, 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 relax guys. We're going to buy it. We love it. It's great software, but not for the reason you think the compliance stuff, that's nice, fine. But we've actually been really focused on our digital customer experience and you're going to help us sell more stuff through our website. That's why we want it. That's why it's great. And this, by the way, was a time when digital customer experience was not a word. Nobody was really thinking about it. This company, again, with that Israeli culture, was able to say, oh, okay, that's interesting. Not only are we going to say thank you and delighted to have you as a customer and happy to give you the the digital customer experience software you want, but we're going to overhaul the entire company and reposition it toward that. And that ultimately, that feedback, that pivot, that responsiveness, and the willingness to kind of go with the flow, it wasn't their plan, but it was what the market was pulling as opposed to what they had been pushing. That led to the inflection point where this company just took off and ultimately grew into a very successful company with hundreds of employees and you know tens of millions of revenue and and all of that. So I think that's where founders can apply this or venture capitalists can help guide founders to apply this. Again, it's it's about having the right culture to begin with and then being responsive to what comes at you and doing it in a way that goes with the flow.
0: Brian, can you think of a specific time where this really uh, applied in your career?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were talking about earlier, just the the, the quote of after the final no, there, there comes a yes. You know, for me, the first decade of my career was an attempt to sort of just willfully make stuff happen. And it didn't work. I, I was doing first started a corporate intelligence company in India as a founder, you know, created something from nothing. And that was nice. And I feel good about that. But The other two companies that did the same thing at the same time, went on to have nine figure exits and, and I didn't. Uh, so in a lot of ways, that was a big failure. And then the next thing I tried to do in India also, again, something from nothing. Great. I feel good about that. But also, uh, did not succeed anywhere near what I thought it was going to do, and actually got to a point where you know I remember, I remember vividly Christmas two thousand nine, and uh, I don't know if it's more or less depressing because I am Jewish, but it was Christmas two thousand nine. I looked at my bank account, and I had literally thirty seven dollars, thirty seven dollars in my bank. So I'd spent ten years trying to build. Something I'd envisioned, and I put everything into it. I was working 100 hours a week. Was really trying to just will it, will it into existence, and it didn't work, and it failed, and it failed over and over again, twice, uh, and many times within each of those two iterations. And finally, you know, after this getting to the point where I had 37 bucks left in my bank, I said, you know what? I gotta, I gotta do something different. Whatever I'm doing isn't working and i need to rather than trying to exert my vision my will my plan i need to step back and and see what comes to me and took another year and a half but that was when i met my former partner who had just come back from israel and had this experience he shared with me that led us to going off and starting something new that ended up really succeeding so I mean I would hope for everybody else it doesn't take 10 years of of failed attempts uh to learn that lesson it took me it, it took me 10 years to learn it and and you know having almost nothing left but I think sometimes that's what it takes to to learn it and then once you learn that and once you apply that uh, it can it can lead to something successful unfortunately the last decade has has been that
1: I completely agree with that. Are there any characteristics, you know, from from entrepreneurs, either, you know, things that they've done in their prior life are good signals that they have those innate abilities in them that you've identified over your career?
2: Yeah, there are. And every startup is different. Each one is its own special snowflake. Uh, and, and they're different as they go. There's that uh, ancient Greek uh, quote from Heraclitus, I think, that is something like, No person steps in the same river twice. It's not the same river. They're not the same person. Everything is dynamic and everything changes. And and a recognition of that is very important to begin with. But I think characteristics within a founder, uh, number one, somebody who has a strong sense of confidence and an inner compass. I think one of your past guests talked about trusting, and it was Eric Rosa, talked about trusting that inner compass. I think that strong sense of of integrity, of direction, of values is number one, because that's the thing that allows you to adapt, adjust, stay agile along the way while still being guided by those first principles. Um, But then after that, I would say openness and, and somebody who is able to hear feedback and not take it personally, but say, okay, the customer said they like this and they don't like that. I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to say, that, that I'm going to approach that with a sense of curiosity. That's interesting. Why do you not like this? Why do you like that? And then adapt to it as as you get that feedback. That responsiveness uh, enables you to really adapt and succeed in a way that, again, a, a more rigid mindset can prevent you from doing. So yeah, I would say again, number one, that self-confidence rooted in values and then an openness to feedback and an ability maybe thirdly to, to be agile and adaptive.
0: Do you think, I mean, this is such an important lesson, I mean, maybe particularly now as, you know, the economy maybe is in a more uncertain place for tech. Things have been a little bit bumpy to say the least over the last six to twelve months for a lot of startups. How do you see founders kind of apply this lesson of going with the flow when you've got different changing economic cycles?
2: Yeah. This is a great time to be a founder. I've now seen a few economic cycles from the late 90s and early 2000s to pre, during, and post 2008. And now, now, some of the best companies in the world are launched at the bottom of the cycle. It's actually a a great time to launch new things, to start new things. Plus, it's a multi-year journey. So if you're just starting today, odds are by the time your startup is ready for prime time, the economy is back and people are buying. So, I'm not daunted at all by the cycle. A lot of times there's a lot of advantage that comes with it. But in a a more macro way, it's exactly what I'm talking about as far as going with the flow, this concept of Wu Wei. There are cycles. There's cycles in our own lives. There's cycles in our startups. There's cycles in our groups of startups. And there's cycles in the economy. And they, they go up, they go down. If you try to either will it Uh, to be what you want it to be, or you try to time it, it's not going to work. But if instead you just say, these are things outside of my control. The economy is what it is. My customers are doing what they're doing. My funders are doing what they're doing. My industry is doing what it's doing. I'm going to adapt to all that as best I can in the most effortless way I can. Then you will come out of it. And when the economy picks up and you've got that tailwind, you're going to be in a perfect place to ride it. So I think it's ultimately the macro situation is just a uh, the macroeconomic situation is just a macro version of what we've been talking
0: about. I totally agree. Well, Brian, this is great. A fantastic lesson uh, that can be applied really to, to the startup journey, um, as you said, all, all parts of it. Where can uh, our listeners follow what you're up to going forward? To be announced. It's uh, still, still. I wouldn't call it stealth mode,
2: but we're. In, um, I'm in discovery mode, exploration and discovery mode. So uh, stay tuned. I'll, I'll start posting on LinkedIn at some point, and uh, hope to have some fun stuff to share.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Brian.